Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, today beginning the Sacrament of the Altar. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Festel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. And Pastor Bestel, as we get going here today, this is the sixth chief part of the small catechism. And of course, we're including and making references to the large catechism as we go through this series of catechism lessons here as well. And of course, you're in a sense doing a large catechism of sorts for us. That's what your catechesis is for us and serving in that purpose. And as we get into this, we've really set up a whole lot getting into this section And of course, there's some more to talk about yet in the catechism. Even when we conclude this, we talk about the six chief parts of the catechism, and yet there are some other parts of the catechism that we're going to cover yet. So a few more episodes with you as we continue to go through this series. But today, getting into the sacrament of the altar, let's just go ahead and jump right into the first question. And of course, as we've seen in a few of these sections in the latter few chief parts of the catechism here, there's a related question. It's kind of one question, but then there's two questions as they are related. Where do we find this in Scripture? Which is a really helpful thing to tie those two together, of course. So this is from Luther's Small Catechism, the Sacrament of the Altar, and that first question, what is the Sacrament of the Altar? It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine, instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. And where is this written? The holy evangelists Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul write, Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All right, thus far, Luther's small catechism. All right, Pastor Bessel, as you take us away here, I always like to emphasize for uh, my catechism students, at least, you know, it's a pretty important and serious thing, not just for us as Lutherans. Of course, we highly value the sacrament of the altar and its place within our Christian life, but Clearly, it is in Scripture when you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul all writing about this. That's a big clue for us that this is a pretty important thing that Christ gives to us in his church. So go ahead and take us away with our catechesis lesson here on the sacrament of the altar. 
You're right, Sean. The three evangelists and St. Paul all talking about this show what a weighty issue this is and just how significant it is in Christ distributing the New Testament to his church, how significant of an issue it is for the ongoing life of the church. And yet, as significant as this is, it's amazing that by the time you get to the sixth chief part, this is actually really simple to teach and to learn in this regard. Uh, what are we on now? I think this is maybe like the 21st episode or so that we've done together in this series. You know, for 20 episodes, basically 20 hours, we've wrestled with a lot of the other parts of the catechism, everything that sort of leads up to this very, in many ways, culminating point. And we've done all the heavy lifting of setting the stage for all of this. And then you get here and you say, you know what? You either take Jesus at his word or you don't. It's that straightforward. You either believe Jesus' word and that his word makes the sacrament, or you don't. And that's the teaching of the Lord's Supper in some ways, isn't it? At least the introductory teaching to it. And so in many ways, this chief part six here is the easiest to teach. Just point to the words of Christ and believe it. The New Testament, as you said, it's amazing how this four times is cited in the New Testament. The New Testament includes Jesus' clear words on baptism. We might say twice, John chapter 3, Matthew 28, perhaps three times with Mark 16. So two or three times Jesus is very clear on baptism. There are certainly many other references to baptism, but in terms of the institution of baptism, Christ, in a sense, commanding the church to give this gift for the benefit of all sinners, that happens two or three times in the Gospels. Confession and absolution, again, basically two or three times, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, as we've looked now in the last couple of episodes, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 are basically Jesus saying the same thing, once almost most directly to Peter, the second time more to the general group of disciples on the binding and loosing of the kingdom of heaven. And then in John 20, when Jesus comes on the night of Easter and the night of his resurrection and now gives them the Holy Spirit and says, okay, now is the time. Now go out and do these things. Again, commanding the church for the benefit of sinners. Then you get to the sacrament of the altar, and there are not just two or three instances, but there are four instances of this recording. As you've said, the evangelist, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all record this. And there's sort of an easy way to think of where to find all of these things. In each of the Gospels, the climactic or the last chapter is always the chapter of the resurrection. The chapter before that, the second to last chapter, is always the chapter on the crucifixion. And the chapter before that is always the chapter that includes the words of institution. So Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, in each of those cases, it's the third to last chapter. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, and people might ask, well, why do we include here 1 Corinthians 11? Why does Luther include 1 Corinthians 11? Well, remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, what I receive from the Lord, I also give to you. He did not get this as secondhand information. He got this directly from Christ himself, and he hands it down to the church. In some ways, when we get to that question of where is this written, and it says the holy evangelist Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul, you know, when we teach our confirmands, we're pointing out that, okay, well, the evangelists here that he's referring to, that Luther's referring to, are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then also St. Paul. And that's the way to understand it historically. I think you could even, theologically, though, you could make a point that in this case, 
Paul, in a sense, is acting like an evangelist because he is giving the words directly from Christ himself. Paul did not learn this from Peter or Luke or Matthew or whatever. He's not relaying this as a secondhand reporter, but he received this from the Lord himself. And so this is a wonderful comfort for us as Christians to think how important are these words to Jesus himself that he makes sure that this is recorded four times. How important to the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit would record this four times, that in the three evangelists, no one can argue that somehow one of the evangelists took it out of context or recorded the words incorrectly or whatever argument they're going to make, or that they were just too stunned to know what was going on, and so they, they didn't record accurately what Jesus actually intended. That's actually an argument that some people try to make, and it's just a weak argument. The three evangelists and also St. Paul. Someone might say, well, gee, it's sort of notable that John is missing out of this. Uh, keep in mind that John's gospel doesn't need to focus on the chronology so much or, or just the reporting of the facts, because the three earlier gospels had done so. John's gospel is very sacramental through and through, and so there are veiled references to Jesus' teaching. Uh, I know there's been a debate in Lutheran history about whether John 6 is sacramental, and I think you just look at the end of the chapter and you say, my word, it's very sacramental. And unfortunately, for those who know sort of the history of Luther wrestling with Zwingli, uh, Luther was trying to point out, I don't even need to go to John chapter 6 because the words of institution in the Holy Evangelist and in St. Paul, those words are so clear that I don't even need to discuss John chapter 6. Okay, well, that's one argument, but you don't then have to throw out the baby with the bathwater and say John 6 is not discussing the sacrament. I think it's something that, as Lutherans, we uh, today can get on the same page and say, you know, I maybe Luther overstated in saying it's not sacramental. He was just trying to make the point that the words of institution are so clear that it makes this so simple. And that's back to my first point. This is one of the easiest sections of the catechism to teach. You just point at the words of institution. You say, there it is. And by this point, people either believe that God's word is authoritative or they don't. And they either try to rationalize their way out of this, or they say, well, thus saith the Lord. And how great is God to be praised uh, when he gives such an unfathomable gift as this meal of the new covenant. So the importance of Paul's testimony here is really important. Paul can say definitively, no, Christ dictated the same thing to me. And remember, why is this important? Because this is the establishment of the New Testament. Uh, that's sort of an interesting one for Christians to wrestle with, I think. You know, when we often think of the New Testament, we think of the very first page of the book of Matthew, and we say, there's the beginning of the New Testament. Well, yes, in, in one sense, that's very true. That's how we know the pages of the Bible, that the Old Testament stops with Malachi, the New Testament starts with Matthew chapter 1. But in a different sense, it's important to recognize that a testament is always something that is built on the promise of the testator, and it, it's not enacted until the testator dies. And so here, Jesus is establishing this very weighty promise of the meal being almost the flesh and blood reality of the testament itself. And Jesus says, here it is, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, right? Great word choice there. That all Christians can look at this and say, the things of the Old Testament are fading away. 
the things of the New Testament are now replacing it. Maybe preparatory, you know, earlier in the Gospels, they obviously still considered themselves people of the Old Testament. They didn't even know of this idea of a New Testament. I think we talked about this when we were talking about how the crowds were confessing Jesus to be the Christ. They didn't know themselves to be people of the New Testament awaiting the coming Christ. They just knew themselves as being people of the line of Abraham who were awaiting the, the coming of the Christ. In the same way, earlier in the Gospels, these folks don't think of themselves as folks of a New Testament. But here, all of a sudden now, you have this language of the New Testament that Jesus is establishing, so that in many ways we can point to that night in the upper room and say, there, there is the establishment of it, with Jesus knowing that later that same day, because if you put on your Jewish goggles, in a sense, your Jewish spectacles, think of the day in the hours that the Jews thought of them, evening came first and then morning came second. And so here on the evening of the day of Christ's crucifixion, you have Jesus instituting the testament and then later in the day, sealing it with his own blood. So the fact that all four record this, and certainly that John hints at it, this shows just how remarkably climactic, in a sense, for the church's joy, and in some ways its understanding of its identity and assembly with Christ. What a climactic point. And therefore, you almost get this sense of feeling like this culmination of these first five chief parts rests in this sixth chief part. So when you get into the actual words in which Jesus is promising here in this meal to celebrate and distribute all the blessings and remembrance of the inheritance that is ours in this testament, notice what is given, quote, the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's really important for us to define this word true. Even in the era of the Reformation, it was a little bit of a struggle that the Protestants in some ways, would say, well, yeah, we believe that Jesus is truly present also. And sort of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, they would say, well, Jesus is truly spiritually present. Uh, I believe it was Calvin's argument that said that the individual would ascend up into heaven and feast on Jesus in heaven because we could not feast on Jesus' true body and blood here on earth. But there was sort of the spiritual eating here on earth while our soul ascended up into heaven. Uh, you can get the sense that they were trying to have it both ways. They didn't believe that Christ was keeping his promise to actually come to the altar and bodily be present on the altar, but they did want to try and, in a sense, win people over to the idea that they still believed in some way of Jesus really being present. And so when Lutherans learn the Catechism, it's really important to sort of underline or circle that word true and define that word very carefully. True not in whatever sense one wants to think of the word true, but true in the sense that Jesus promised it, his actual flesh and blood. Uh, As we talked about in episodes past, spirit does not have flesh and blood. The incarnation is so significant not only for the idea of the Messiah coming to do the work of salvation, but also for the idea of the Messiah distributing the benefits of salvation that the Messiah is flesh and blood, and flesh and blood is not spiritual in the sense that spirit is not flesh and blood. And so when Jesus comes as true God and true man, and he says, this is my body and blood, you cannot spiritualize those words. If it's his body and blood, it's his human body and blood, because there is no such thing as, in a sense, 
God's body and blood outside of the incarnation in which God makes himself man. And so in this understanding, the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps that's why today, in defense against some of this Protestant effort at doublespeak, perhaps that's why today the idea of using the adverb bodily, that Christ is bodily present, uh, that's actually a very helpful way of speaking so that Lutherans can defend against this American evangelical notion of saying, yeah, we believe that Christ is truly present or really present, and they think of it as being really present and define it as spiritual presence rather than as in the sense that Jesus spoke of actually bodily being here in his very flesh and blood, the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that body and blood, the body and blood of perfect man, the body and blood of the perfect sacrifice, the body and blood of the risen Christ, right? We are not just eating the body and blood of our crucified Lord and Savior Jesus, but we are eating the body and blood of the risen Christ. And in that sense, and not just in the sense that he kept all of God's holy law, but also in the sense of his glory, uh, I actually, when I distribute the elements, I will interchange sometimes the word true, and instead of simply saying, take, eat the true body of Christ, I will also say, take, eat the holy body of Christ, right? This is beneficial to us because it belongs to none other than Jesus. It would do no good for me to say, take, eat the body of Mark Bestel. That wouldn't do one bit of good for anybody. But the fact that this is the body of our Messiah, that gives us great comfort, great joy, but also the great benefit of what we are eating and drinking, the holy body and blood of Jesus. And therefore, when we understand these words, the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, sadly, in our English language, I think we've downplayed just how weighty that word true is, or especially those, you know, bulletin announcements sometimes that say, here, we believe that Jesus is really present. Boy, that's a weak statement. We really need to make every best possible effort of confessing the bodily presence of Christ. Now, where does he give this for us? Under the bread and wine. Well, how is the word under meant? Notice that all four elements remain. Think of 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11, in which Paul very specifically talks about eating and drinking the bread and the wine, which you can't do if they cease to exist at the words of institution. Right? So you've got the Roman Catholic understanding of transubstantiation. And if any of our listeners have ever been to a Roman Catholic service, maybe you know years back you were Roman Catholic, uh, you remember hearing that that bell would ring at a particular moment of the service to say, here now is only the body and blood of Jesus, the bread and wine have ceased to exist, and it has transubstantiated, it has crossed over substances so that the bread and wine no longer remain, but only the body and blood remains, uh, which then is why they go on with certain practices like keeping the host in a box all week, in a tabernacle all week, and having their eternal light uh, there in the sanctuary showing that, yes, the body and blood of Jesus is still here throughout the week. Uh, Lutherans say, no, that's not the understanding of the Scriptures. The understanding of the Scriptures is not that Christ somehow philosophically or scientifically changes the bread and the wine so that they cease to exist, but rather this is why we refer to it as the host, the bread and wine host the body and blood of Christ. And we can, this is one of the joys of being Lutherans, when I've got people who come from a, a 
American evangelical background, and they come and they ask questions like, how does this happen? And I think I might have mentioned this in episodes on baptism. How do these things happen? It's great to be a Lutheran and just sort of shrug your shoulders and say, I don't know. Christ just promises that it does. His word makes it so. I don't have to try to scientifically or philosophically explain this. I don't have to pretend that if I were to take the host and put it in a laboratory under a microscope, I would somehow there find the DNA of Jesus. That's not going to happen. Christ is sacramentally present, meaning he's not locally present in the sense that if you weigh the host before the words of institution, it's going to be a little bit lighter than weighing the host after the words of institution, right? We don't believe that the substance of the bread all of a sudden now is just a little bit heavier, or the substance of the wine takes up just a little bit more volume. That's not at all what we're saying, and it's not what Christ there says, but rather that with the bread and the wine, in a way that we cannot fathom, but just because God promises it so in these words of institution, Christ is bodily present for us. And I don't have to try to scientifically or philosophically prove this. This also is why the Protestants sometimes will accuse Lutherans of believing in consubstantiation. They'll say, well, you don't believe that it crosses over into a substance, but they'll say you believe that somehow the bread and the body are there together physically or locally. And we say, no, that's not true either. We're not consubstantiationists. We don't believe that, again, the body of Jesus takes up volume to make the bread heavier, or the blood of Jesus takes up volume to make the wine fill the cup even more. And so it's simply the sacramental reality. Remember what the word sacrament means. This is God's gift. These are the holy things. Therefore, it cannot be explained scientifically, and it need not be explained scientifically. Science doesn't have the answer to everything. And one of the things science doesn't have the answer to is the holy workings of God. And so when God says, this is how I am going to work, then all Christians can simply take him at his word. And that's the next point to make. This is instituted by Christ himself, right? That's what the text says, instituted by Christ himself. It's no mere Lutheran tradition. Lutherans didn't say, huh, how do we want to separate ourselves out from other Christian church bodies? I know, let's become sacramentalists or sacramental in thought. That's not it at all. This doesn't come from Germany. It doesn't come from Luther. It's not a Lutheran form of Christianity. This is just what Christ promises. It's just because this is how he instituted it as the meal of the new covenant, Christ himself making the institution. You can't mistake this. The certainty of Christ's words mean everything to this. Apart from Christ's words, this is nothing. But with Christ's words, this is everything that we explain it to be and more, right? I mean, you just can't talk up the sacrament of the altar enough. Uh, same thing with baptism, same thing with absolution. You can't speak of these things enough or praise them enough or describe them gloriously enough. These are the holy workings of God, and we simply cannot fathom how God has blessed us with these gifts. And yet we can believe them because we can take them right at their word. A uh, wonderful story that a, a parishioner shared with me not too long ago, where he was talking with some American evangelical friends of his, and the things that they were really stuck on again were the sacraments. And so they were talking about the sacrament of the altar, and he said, well, look at the words of Jesus. Doesn't he say, this is my body, this is my blood? And one of the two American evangelical friends quickly interjected with the other one, don't answer that, it's a trap. 
Well, my word, if you have to say that Christ is trying to trap you with his plain words, boy, that's, that's a pretty sad understanding of Jesus' love for his church. Jesus speaks plainly to us. We don't have to try to figure this one out. The words are so simple. This is. This is. And as long as we say, look, Christ said it, we've got four eyewitnesses to this, in a sense, or four testimonies to this, plus John. Why not just take him at his word? And it makes it very simple. And therefore, what do we Christians do with this? We eat it and we drink it. On this point, this is the Christian view, isn't it? Notice how Luther includes that. It's for us Christians to eat and to drink. It's not for Lutherans to eat and to drink. There is only one truly Christian view when it comes to these things of God, right? We could say the same thing about baptism. We could say the same thing about absolution. We could say the same thing of every point of Christian doctrine. There is only one truth to this because Christ is the one who gets to define it. And so what, what is this for? This is for Christians to eat and to drink. And all who have this proper understanding of the supper have the Christian view on this. Those who have an improper understanding of the supper, sadly, do not have the Christian view on this. But for us Christians, we eat and drink this. Again, there's not a Lutheran use of the supper, not a Roman Catholic use, not a Protestant use. Christ is actually there, either to benefit the believing or sadly, unto the harm of the unbelieving. And we'll get into that when we get further into the Catechism's teaching on this. So there is only a Christian use. And yet, with the Christian use, there's the totality of the Christian benefit, just as Christ has promised in the words of institution. And therefore, how do we use it? It's for us Christians to eat and to drink, not to parade or worship and adore Uh, You know, Christians misunderstood this in the early centuries. In fact, one of the things that I like to do in the teaching on this is bring in some of the practices of the Supper. And you say, well, how come you don't bring in the practices of every other point of doctrine? Because in the divine service, it's the Supper where our whole bodies partake of worship, if you will. When we're listening to a sermon, our bodies sit silent. When we're watching a baptism, right, our bodies, in a sense, are silent. Yes, when we sing hymns, our bodies more involved. But the practice of the divine service takes, in a sense, full form in the sacrament of the altar. So I like to point out the various practices and customs because it's part of our whole body taking part in this. Well, one of the things to point out is that in the early church, it was actually more commonplace to receive the sacrament by hand. Sometimes people think, oh, it's more high church to receive it with the tongue, or it's more holy. Well, that's not true. In the early church, they actually received it by hand. But then, because some people were not well catechized, and they said, well, this is for us Christians, but they forgot that it was for us Christians to eat and to drink, and therefore believing that it was, rightly believing that it was the holy body and blood of Christ, They misused it by sneaking it home and worshiping it at home. And therefore, the pastor said, all right, from now on, we're going to put it right to your tongue so that you can't misuse this. Now, if you are one who likes to partake of the sacrament by having it placed right upon your tongue, you can understand a good theological understanding of why to retain that custom would be that this is such a holy thing that we sinners are not even worthy to touch it with our hands. And yet Christ places it right into our mouths, uh, almost in the same way as you have that picture of Isaiah having his lips being purified by the angel with the tongs. And so nothing wrong at all with the Christian practice of communing just by having it placed right upon your tongue. And yet, again, from church history, nothing wrong at all 
if you are a community who takes it by the hand. That's a good, right, salutary practice, too. That's what faith does, right? Faith says, great, if you're going to put something into my hand, I'm going to take it. This is for my benefit. So in this case, all Christians should have a clear conscience in however way you want to make use of that practice. I think we'll go ahead and pause there as we are coming right up on a break, but I like what you have phrased for us here. Some of my favorite words in this section have always been for us Christians to eat and to drink. As I said in the setup of this episode today, this is what Christ gives to his church for us to receive. And so as we have these different practices of how we receive this, it's important to think theologically about those things. It's important for lay people, even the most simple ones, to consider what is it we are confessing by the way that we receive this, and to consider then as well that what we are doing when we receive it, that we not do it you know, it's just so casually as if it's nothing and so forth, because that would confess something as well, right? And so when we receive it in reverence, that that confesses something. That's how we view this. And so I think this is really important to talk about some of these practical matters of what we do when we receive the Lord's Supper so that we can have a theological understanding of this. And I like how you set that up. I think you have some more things for us to consider on this. So we'll pick that up on the other side of the break with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Brady Finneran of Thy Strong Word. Join us to be renewed and refreshed by God's Word and to be pointed to our resurrected Lord Jesus every weekday from 11 to noon, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. series, The Catechized Life, and today covering the sacrament of the altar. And just before break, we kind of ran right up against break there, but just before break, Pastor Bessel, you were giving us some practical things that we should consider the theology that inform our practice of how we celebrate the Lord's Supper and what that confesses and what we do or don't do, and those sorts of things. And I think all of this is very, very important for our lay people to consider. This isn't just for pastors to think about and so forth, but that this is utterly practical for our Christian life, especially as we gather to receive this very precious gift that Christ gives to us for forgiveness, life, and salvation. I love what you're doing here, and I know you have a few more points that you'd like to make. And have us consider the theology behind those practices that we have as it relates to the Lord's Supper here. So go ahead and take us away with a few more examples or a few more things to talk about here, Pastor Besson. Sure. When we talk about some of the practices regarding the sacrament, and we said in the first half of the hour that, you know, here's where the whole body gets to take part. And when I read the small catechism and I read this final question that we'll get to in this chief part is this question on fasting and bodily preparation. Well, bodily preparation doesn't just have to happen the night before or the rest of the morning leading up to this. 
But in a sense, bodily preparation is also bodily posture at the sacrament and at the table. And so I'll reserve some of those things for when we get to that fourth question on fasting and bodily preparation. But there are some other things that we should take into consideration when it comes to our practice and how our practice confesses the theology of what is going on. First of all, I think it's important for folks to really wrestle with this, that because this is not a representation of Christ's body, because it's not a memorial meal in the Protestant sense, we're not trying to recreate that night in the upper room. Right? That, I think that's something that people really miss often, as they say, well, you know, uh, how did they do it that very first night, and let's just do it like them. Well, okay, that first night there were no women present, and that first night they probably, if they, you know, standard Jewish custom was to lay down on the floor and basically dine on a table that was basically like a mat or maybe very slightly elevated off the floor, I, you know, but their customs and practices of eating were not at all what our customs are. We are not trying to recreate this, but rather we're saying this word of the Testament is what makes this the never-ending feast. It makes it the never-ending feast because the promise is never-ending. I don't have to try to recreate it, right? We, In many ways, I don't think we as Lutherans even talk about this notion of it being the Last Supper in the same way that Reformed and Protestants do, because they're, they're thinking of it as a memorial, as, oh, isn't this a sad thing that this is the last time Jesus ate with his disciples? And in a sense, the only way we as Lutherans theologically understand this as the Last Supper is that it's the supper to replace all suppers. This is the never-ending feast. This is the first taste of the marriage banquet. And with that then comes practices not trying to recreate the upper room. You know, sometimes in our churches and congregations, people like to learn about the Seder meal, and they think that this is a way to sort of go back into the history and sort of be like what it was in the first century. My question is always, why the institution of the New Testament replaced the Seder meal? So, okay, fine, if you just want to study the history of it, okay, but it doesn't add any depth or meaning to this at all, other than to say the meal of the New Testament replaced all of that, and it fulfilled all of that. I've actually got a um, PowerPoint presentation, uh, and I don't use PowerPoint almost ever, but I actually use this one just to have the different colors and things on the images, where I point out that if you look at the words of institution of Christ, and you look at those different words, all of them can point to one of the Old Testament sacrifices. You know, they had different sacrifices, the whole burnt offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, all of these different sacrifices. And the words even hint in the words of institution at those various offerings in a way in which we can say, Christ is fulfilling all of this with this meal. So I don't have to try to recreate it. My practices aren't about trying to recreate it, but rather to simply receive the benefit, which is theologically understood by faith and by the practice of the body, right? The body confesses the faith that we are receiving and confessing here in the sacrament and all the benefits therein. And therefore, a couple things that we ought to point out here is that we ought to focus more on what Jesus said than on what he did. Now think about this. The words of institution say that Jesus took bread and broke it. That doesn't mean that we have to break bread in a sense of actually breaking it apart, making this great show of breaking the bread. The wording there isn't a wording that says you have to physically break the bread. It simply means that he's preparing to distribute this. But words that he actually says are the words that we should hang on. 
not just the description of what was going on, but what he actually says regarding this meal. So we do not need to physically break the bread because Jesus never commanded us to. He didn't say so. He just did so. Uh, interestingly, he did speak of the cup. Christians ought very carefully consider that Jesus doesn't use extra or incidental words or words that could be very easily misconstrued or confused on this, right? When he's doing something so monumental as establishing a new testament between God and man and establishing the meal of that testament that he's about to seal everything with his crucifixion, with his death, he's not going to use words that we have to sit here and say, now, what did he really mean by that? And so when he says for them, drink from it, all of you, or drink of it, but really the word there in the Greek, ex, I think a very good argument could be made that that really reminds us of the English word exit, to drink out of. So drink from it or drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. He says it right there. Now, I don't mean to say that that should all of a sudden become a legalism, but rather to say, why try to reinterpret that? Why try to say, oh, he didn't really mean it. He really only meant the wine in the cup. Okay, but that's not what he said. He said, drink from it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. And then he goes on and talks about drinking of the fruit of the vine and the life everlasting. So yes, of course it was the wine, just as it was the bread. And yet he actually uses the words about using the cup. Um, Lutherans have a long history of the practice of retaining that one cup, partly because of the theology. This is a great sharing in everything that Christ gives. Remember, in Jewish custom, you didn't share drinks or meals or whatever with anyone that you didn't trust. This is a sign of the commonality of the faith, right? This is the sign of the unity of doctrine, that we don't come to feast individually alongside each other, but we come to share in the participation of the everlasting meal with Christ and with one another. I one time had somebody say, you know what, I agree with you on all points of doctrine except evolution, but that really doesn't matter to the Lord's Supper, so I think you should let me become a member, and I just won't tell anybody that I believe in evolution. I said, no, I'm sorry, that's not how this works. And the person said, well, what does it matter? I can have my own individual meal with Jesus, and the person next to me can have their own individual meal with Jesus. No, that's not at all what we're talking about in the sacrament. And so we have to understand that our practices, even if we're not going to make them legalistic, uh, and we shouldn't make legalism where legalism isn't meant to be made, but where Christ speaks very plainly about the institution of the supper, we ought not redefine it for creature comfort or because we don't trust it or because we simply want to redefine it. Because when we do, we run into things in which people start to think that the supper is a very individualistic thing. So... The fact that he refers to one cup should give us a little bit of pause. Now, that brings a little bit of a history lesson in here, doesn't it? I think it's very understandable that the Christian and the Lutheran who for their entire life has used the individual cup, I think it's very understandable that they would really struggle with this if I just came by and ripped the individual cup out of their hand. And I tell our members all the time, look, I'm going to teach on this and teach on this and teach on this. But if someone in the congregation uses an individual cup, I'm not going to slap it out of their hand, okay? They know that I'm going to keep teaching on this, and I'm going to keep pointing to what the actual history is of this. And I think a lot of Lutherans don't know what the history of the individual cup is. Where did the individual cups come from? Well, there was a lawyer named Vanderwerken 
who apparently had the idea of drinking out of individual glasses in the 1880s. And he published his idea in some Brooklyn papers, and the idea didn't catch on. And then it, uh, a couple of years later, it finally started to catch on. There are various historical claims where this started. Some proudly point to Scoville Avenue Methodist Episcopal Church in Cleveland, Ohio, saying, look, December of 1891, they were already using it. Uh, others point to Methodists in Rochester, New York in 1893. But what happened up in New York, I think, is instrumental to understanding why this became fashionable. Remember, this happened among the Methodists. This happened in the age of temperance, in which people said wine is sinful. And this happened right on the heels of an invention called grape juice introduced by Mr. Welch. And so when the Methodists of the Psi Upsilon fraternity were drinking together, and as part of the women's temperance movement, they wanted to appeal to the women's temperance movement. And so the fraternity, the men said, okay, fine. We will not use wine. We will use grape juice. After all, it's only a representation. It's only a memorial. We don't actually have to take Christ's words seriously. And so let's replace wine with grape juice. Well, when you do that, you take away the wisdom of Christ in establishing this with wine, which is that wine kills all the germs, right? Even to this day, every time the CDC or you know some sort of health agency tries to test the common cup to prove that maybe it's full of germs and we shouldn't use it, every single time, including with COVID, by the way, the question came out right away with COVID and they said, we point back to our earlier studies that said the common cup is cleaner not only than the individual cups, because the common cup uses silver, it uses gold, which are non-porous services. Individual cups use plastic, they use glass, both are which are very porous. And the common cup then with the wine has the cleaning agent right on non-porous services. The chalice is wiped clean. There's just no chance for these germs to survive. And every time the scientists do their work, they say, oh yeah, this is very clean. In fact, not only is it cleaner than the individual cups, but some studies have pointed out it's probably the cleanest surface in the sanctuary, right? If you're sort of germaphobic, and I know people who are, and again, it's just part of our fallen world to be aware of the germs that are out there, and there's nothing wrong with being aware of it. But if you're sort of germaphobic, understand there is nothing in the sanctuary that is cleaner than the common cup. So don't be afraid of the common cup because of germs. And yet this is exactly why the switch was made to individual cups, because the Methodists used grape juice. They all started getting sick. And they said, well, we can't go back to using wine because wine is sinful, prohibition movement, temperance movement. And so they went to these individual cups that had been proposed by this Vanderwerken, you know, 10 years earlier or so. It seems that the Lutherans held out historically for a while. In 1906, there was a very unfortunate article written by a Lutheran by the name of J.D. Kraut in Lutheran Quarterly, which is sort of the first crack in the dam. And he espouses individual cups benefit for time's sake. He says, hey, it'll just go faster. Uh, he says the pastor not worrying about spilling is an important issue. So he says, hey, this is a convenient thing. And as a quote in his article, he even says, cleanliness is next to godliness. And thus, implicitly, he denounces the supposedly unclean common cup. That was 1906, where it really seems to become popular. And I don't know the exact history behind this, but it really seems to become popular right around 1920. And I'm guessing here, to be perfectly honest, but remember 1918 was the Spanish flu and 1919. 
And that scares people. We know that from COVID. And when people get scared, what do they do? They rationalize. And they say, this must be safer. Christ obviously didn't know what he was doing when he instituted this 2,000 years ago. He couldn't have known then what we know now about germs. Well, that's not true. He's Christ. He's the Lord. He's true God. Uh, And this is where it gets to a theological understanding. Is this holy body and blood of Christ going to harm you, or is it going to be beneficial? Uh, We'll talk about this perhaps a little bit later when we get to fasting and bodily preparation or some other uh, aspects, but I have celiac disease, and therefore I'm not supposed to be eating gluten. In many ways, this does not affect my communion practice at all. For the last eight years or however long I've been diagnosed with it, I continue to receive the supper. I do take one little measure, and I'll explain this when we get to this point later on in the discussion, take one little measure because it is true bread. But you know what? I've always said, if God wants to bring me home to heaven by killing me with his sacrament, there's no better way to go. Now, I say that facetiously. I, you know, I, I encourage all of my members and I encourage all of our listeners and hearers to know God is not going to deal with you carelessly. He designed this for your benefit, and we cannot improve upon his design. And so fear always seems to breed innovation that is convenient. You know, think of the innovation that we've had in the past year and a half, which are just, you know, again, I'd really wrestle with these innovations, folks, and and I'd encourage your pastors to really wrestle with these. If Christ is going to come in his true flesh and blood and dwell with us incarnately, why are we trying to have virtual communion? That doesn't even make sense. Christ says, I want to come in my true body and blood. And we say, I don't want you to. I'm not going to dwell with you in my true body and blood, Jesus. I'm going to dwell apart from the gathered assembly and do it virtually. That's not even consistent with our theology. Uh, You know, individually packaged and wrapped things. I know this is a sensitive time because of COVID, but as Christians, we should say, am I really afraid that Jesus didn't know that we would get into pandemics? that he couldn't foresee the Black Plague, and yet the church went through the Black Plague with Common Cup and with the host and just kept on going in faith, right? Do we really need to say that in a time of COVID and time of pandemics that we have to innovate because Christ and his words of institution are insufficient? That's something that we really should wrestle with, and I don't mean to denounce anyone or any congregation or any pastor, but wrestle with that, because this is a theological confession. What do I believe is here present? Is it the holy body and blood of Jesus, or is it a mere memorial and representation of it? And the answer to that question, in many ways, determines our confidence and our posture going forward to the altar. Again, we'll talk about this when we get to bodily preparation, but the question of kneeling and standing as has become a question in our church body over the last 50 years, is in many ways simply a question in Christian freedom of saying, well, what are you trying to confess is going on here? And I think people both standing and kneeling can confess well regarding what is going on here. But we have to do this not for tradition's sake, or not because we're trying to recreate what was going on in the upper room, but rather we do this to confess that what is happening here is otherworldly, it is heavenly, God knew nothing better to give you than the Lord's Supper, right? He said, what gift do I want to give to the baptized? I will give them preaching. I will give them absolution. And what meal do I want to share with them? Here it is, right? We simply cannot improve upon this. I one time had somebody ask me, what do you think we will eat at the marriage feast 
in heaven, right? You always get that image of the marriage feast. It's there, you know, in Jesus' own teaching and in Revelation, talking about this idea of the marriage feast. And they said, what do you think we're going to be eating? And I said, how do you improve upon the holy body and blood of the Messiah? I think we'll be eating the holy body and blood of the Messiah, the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, which has no end, right? And notice there, he's even there depicted as the Lamb, the Lamb who is slain, the Lamb who's slain but victorious, but with a slain Lamb always comes eating, always comes feasting. In the Old Testament, they always feasted on the things that were sacrificed. Why is that now different, not only in the New Testament, but in the everlasting feast? So I tend to think that we ought to understand the Lord's Supper not just as the foretaste as if, well, this is sort of the appetizer and the real thing will come later. But this is the first taste of the eternal reality. This is like when you, you know, when you're getting ready to get married and they come and bring you a sample of what you want on your wedding banquet. That's really what the Lord's Supper is. It's a sample of what's going on in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever. And this sample of the banquet, this opportunity to take this first taste is going to strengthen and sustain us because it's the holy body and blood of Jesus. Now that gets us into the next question, so I guess I should take a break here and let you uh, focus us on the next question. Yeah, I think this really does transition quite nicely into the next question, which we still want to tackle here in this episode, last 10 minutes or so. And it's set up really well by all of those theological considerations that we want to have and the practices that we have that you covered there as well. So let's go ahead and take the next question that comes to us in a small catechism. What is the benefit of this eating and drinking? These words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, show us that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation are given us through these words. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. As far Luther's small catechism. All right, Pastor Bessel, go ahead and take us away here with talking about this great benefit that we have that permeates all of our thinking in the Lord's Supper here. Yeah, so it starts with the explanation, these words, there it is again, always just hanging on Jesus' word of truth. That's all the Lutheran confession of the sacrament is, right? There's nothing secretive about it. It's just hanging on Jesus' words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Now, given and shed where? There's an interesting one. Well, of course, on the cross, that's where Christ completed the sacrifice, but also in the meal, not in the Roman Catholic sense of being re-sacrificed, but in that the word for shed doesn't necessarily refer to sacrificial bleeding, but it can also refer to pouring and distributing. So this cup is the New Testament in my blood, that blood once shed upon the cross where the Testament was sealed, but now poured out in the supper of the Testament. Same thing with the word given. Well, given could mean given in the past, but it could also mean it's being given to you right now. And so, yes, Christ once gave himself upon the cross, once for all mankind, and yet the benefits of that are being given to you right now. So given to you right now, just as it was once given on the cross, shed and poured out for you right now, just as that blood once poured forth, as John himself says, he who saw it and is born witness, he knows he is telling the truth, right? When the spear plunged into his side. So we certainly ought think of the completed sacrifice on Calvary. We are not Roman Catholic, a sad, sad reality in the Roman Catholic Church that they are taught to think that here they are somehow doing an unbloody re-sacrifice. Again, almost sort of this mindset of recreating what was going on, that 
Now, I know I, you know, our Roman Catholic friends would say, you're misrepresenting us. But in a very simplistic way, this idea of offering up a new sacrifice, right? Jesus has perfected the sacrifice. He now gives us his body and blood that we might offer up a sacrifice. Well, no, it's not given and shed for you to earn the forgiveness of sins or given and shed for you to do something by which you bring the forgiveness of sins to yourself, but rather it's given and shed for you with this benefit as it's being brought to you, right? Not as it's brought for you to use to acquire a benefit, but the benefit is being brought to you as the gift is being brought to you. That's the distinction between the Lutheran understanding and the Roman Catholic understanding. Roman Catholic understanding is this is being made available for you to use, and by using it, acquiring another benefit. Whereas the Lutherans say, no, as this is brought to you, it's brought to you with benefit right here, and then so that all faith does is receive it. Okay, so pastors should then take care of how they speak when distributing. And, you know, sometimes when we walk by and the congregant hears words like, the body of Christ given upon the cross for you. Well, wait a minute here. That's not just what we're talking about, but rather the body of Christ given right here and now for you, right? Again, the blood of Christ shed upon the cross for you, some pastors will say. Well, wait a minute. We're not just remembering that as a past event. This is not just a memorial meal, but rather it is actually distributing here and now the very body and blood that once was upon the cross and once there was given and shed is now being given and distributed or poured out in the sacramental meal that happens every Sunday. And so it might be a better way to speak in a way that is more inclusive, rather than including that phrase upon the cross for you, which isn't actually in the ritual or in the hymnal. It's given and shed for you, right? Or, or the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And so the communicant's present tense gift from the host of the meal himself. Uh, when I go through and distribute, I actually use these words. I say, as I mentioned before, the holy body of Jesus or the holy body of the Christ given for you, the true body of the Christ given for you. And then with the cup, I'll go through and say, the holy blood of Jesus, or the precious blood of Jesus, shed for you for the remission of sins. Or I'll say, the precious blood of Jesus poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And to point out, this is a present tense benefit. It's not just a memorial of what happened in the past. This, again, distinguishes what is called Lutheran theology, but it distinguishes the truth of the Scripture from all of those sadly unchristian views that want to say that the sacrament of the altar is not a here-and-now benefit reality, but rather it's simply a hearkening to things that Christ does elsewhere or did at times past. That's a sad, unchristian view of the sacrament. The sacrament is heaven coming to earth this very moment, Christ being both himself the feast and also the giver of the feast, and us benefiting from that on bended knee. And for what benefit here? Notice where he says, for you. It's the only time in the Gospels where Christ uses this formal phrase, this hooper humon, the only place in the Gospels where Jesus uses this phrase to make such a promise. Now, that doesn't mean baptism isn't for you or absolution isn't for you, but this is how much of a pinnacle this sacrament is in the divine service, that here now, everything's sort of leading up to this. This is for you. And for what benefit? For the forgiveness of sins. And as Luther says in the explanation, for the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation. Notice the great progression of thought. 
Life is not just a word for the soul, but it's also a word for the body. So I have forgiveness of sins for the soul, but I have life also for the body as he prepares the body for the grave and for the resurrection and body and soul together know salvation, eternal deliverance. It's the medicine of immortality, Irenaeus once referred to it as, or as Luther says, usually when a wolf eats the lamb, the lamb becomes part of the wolf. But in the sacrament of the altar, when the wolf, the sinner, eats the lamb, Christ, the wolf actually becomes like the lamb, right? He's cleansed by the lamb. So hereby Christ prepares your body for the resurrection, points you to the end times, and that's why we refer to this sometimes, or at least I refer to this in teaching, if baptism was the sacrament of entrance and absolution was the sacrament of daily life wrestling, then the sacrament of the altar is the sacrament of eschatology, the sacrament of the end times. Consider the words of the dismissal. Now this holy body and precious blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus, the Christ, strengthen you and keep you steadfast in the one true faith unto life everlasting. And then what do we do? We sing Simeon's song. Lord, now I can depart in peace, not just from the table, as if we're just ready to go home for the week. I could depart from this life this moment, and I've had all the preparation I need to depart from this life. So what beautiful benefits in this eating and drinking. Absolutely. We'll go ahead and wrap up there then as we have covered here the first part of what we're going to cover in the sixth chief part of Luther's small catechism here in the sacrament of the altar. We talked about what the sacrament of the altar is and what is the benefit of this eating and drinking. We'll take up the rest of this with the questions, how can bodily eating and drinking do such great things and who receives this sacrament worthily? We'll talk about those things on our episode next time as we convene for Concord. And so that's all we have for today with our catechist, Pastor Mark Festel, and I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. Thank you for stopping by today, dear listener. Until next time, keep confessing, church. <laughs>